Hello and welcome to our podcast. It's 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. We are proud partners with the Sign Institute and American University and can't wait to the day that we can get back to that studio. We have a couple really interesting things to talk about today and a great guest later. But first, please subscribe to 2020 Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. James, you're down in Mississippi, and I hope you're safe. I'm trying to stay that way. Trying to stay that way. Drove 14 hours to get there. Man, I'll tell you, you know, you're 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 a lot younger guy than I am, James. It's a lot of driving, but I did, I did two stops. Wow. Two stops. Something. One look north of Knoxville and one south of Tuscaloosa. <laughs> well, you made it. Good. You're in good health. Um, James, Donald Trump threatened uh, this week to cut off funds for the state of Michigan. Now, why? Because the secretary of state out there sent mail-in ballots for the primary and general elections, a state that has been hit hard by the COVID-19 virus, a state that uh, has had uh, natural disasters occurring out there, floods. Uh, Some towns may have to be shuttered for a while. So why wouldn't you send mail-in ballots? Perfectly legal, but he wants to cut off funds. Uh, At the same time, uh, the GOP has has launched a massive effort uh, for uh, poll watching to stop what they call widespread fraud, uh, which is really voter suppression because there isn't any widespread fraud. And now you've insisted for several months that Trump can't win a fair election. I think it looks like he agrees with you. He does. He said that. Understand, Trump said, I can't win if everybody votes. You can read in my piece. I'll link to it. It's been said by multiple other people. I mean, of course this is what's going on. It figures the only way that he could win is that you stop people from voting, particularly urban people, because that's where most Democrats are from. But they do that through gerrymandering. They do that through making it difficult to vote, their ballot access. They'll, they'll, uh, they'll put one voting machine for every 1,000 people in Milwaukee, and they'll put one for every 100 people somewhere in northern Wisconsin. I mean, do that all the time. And I guess the Democrats are just going to have to make the, the franchise part of their platform. Well, the question is, they will do that. I think you're right. They will do that, and they'll do it in a multiple uh, uh, ways. Uh, they're even. I don't think one can dismiss when Jared Kushner says, well, we may have to postpone or call off the election. No, that wouldn't even have been a discussion under any other president in our lifetime. But it's not something you can just quickly dismiss. So there's all sorts of no. things they'll They'll try. The, the The issue is, are the Democrats and others prepared to deal with this? I don't know, because I don't know what you're going to be dealing with. I mean, well, you know you're going to be dealing with a whole smorgasbord of possibilities, though, right. don't you? I, I, and that's all going to be legal. A lot of it. But yes, the polls are going to get worse for them. They're already horrible. I mean, right now, they would, get, they would lose bad. And I don't see it getting any better. So, yeah, they're going to they're gonna really try some stuff here. Well, that's why they're doing that in Michigan. I mean, Michigan polls show them down seven. Uh, uh, you know, same thing with uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, and, uh, the, I mean, the, other, the irony about Trump in Michigan is this notion that the mail-in ballot is some kind of democratic ploy. First of all, uh, for a long time, pre-Trump, mail-in ballots probably advantaged Republicans more than they did Democrats. For some reason, some Democratic constituencies, lower income, uh, some uh, voters of color have have 
more difficulty with mail-in ballots. There's no tradition there. But there was an election just, what, last week in California, special election, Katie Hellseat up in, uh, you know, Simi Valley. Democrat had to, had, had to resign. Republican won, fueled by mail-in ballots. So it's, it's an utter canard to say that mail-in ballots are some kind of democratic plot, except it may bring out, they may bring out more people to vote against Trump. Whatever's in his mind, he just wants to delegitimize the whole thing. The more he can delegitimize it, the better it is. And so he, he, he just disruption. He goes from one day to the next. Who, where's he going to be the day after this? I mean, it was, it was taking hydroxychloroquine, and that, everybody was crazy. It was the biggest news you've ever heard in your life. And, of course, he stops the story about the response, so now we go to this. Then he'll say it's all rigged, and he'll go to something else. You haven't tried, you haven't tried Clorox yet. You're right. I, I mean, it, he does. It, it, it's a one-day thing, and everybody gets outraged by it, and go boom, 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 boom. Then tomorrow it'll be something else. I mean, he's a, I don't know what he, I mean, he maybe, maybe he just had an attention span or maybe it's just like Steve Bannon said, just, we're going to flood, we're going to flood the zone with shit. That's what they do. They flood the zone with shit. And we run after every piece of shit. They flood. Well, that's what he is always, that's what he's always done, James. I agree. I mean, uh, you know, our favorite new uh, site is the bulwark uh, by conservative Republicans who are now never Trumpers. And uh, this guy, Tim Miller, used to be Jeb Bush's communications chief, uh, said, this is not new to Trump as president. This is what he did in business. This is what he's done in everything in his life. He is a great diverter. He is a great one when he's in trouble. He'll raise some bogus issue. He'll he'll pound on it. He'll try to create some kind of parity between that and a legitimate issue uh, and then and then lie. And that's what he's doing now. And, you know, he, he gets away with more of it than he should. Again, the hydroxychloroquine thing is perfect. That thing got covered like a world war. And to what avail? He's not taking it. He lies about everything. But but it, it was almost blanket coverage everywhere. And the cost of response, everything else gets buried. Then he'll, he'll be somewhere else tomorrow. Well, I want to. I'm going to get into the, the the totally fraudulent Obamagate uh, charge they're making. Uh, but but first, let me let me pick up on this and the media because I think there are some difficult questions there, and they're difficult questions for the legitimate press here. Uh, I think overhyping stories, letting them set a a fraudulent agenda. And let me give you one or two examples. Uh, I don't think the idea that the attorney general says that Obama and Biden are not going to be under criminal investigation is a front page story because it's a totally bogus charge. I mean, I'm not going to be under investigation for pedophilia. Uh, I mean, it just is absolutely bogus. And to have Trump's Roy Cohn uh, look like he's striking some distance, but keeping the story alive by even saying it, I, I, I suppose you have to cite it. You have to mention it because Trump made this outlandish charge, but you, you, you don't have to play it the way it's played sometimes. And I'll give you another example. By, and this is one of our very favorite reporters, Jonathan Martin at the uh, New York Times, did a perfectly good, a very tough piece on Donald Trump Jr. Uh, and his absolutely unfounded lie uh, suggesting that somehow Joe Biden 
uh, was engaged in pedophilia. Uh, Eric, wasn't it? It was a really tough piece. It couldn't have been a better piece. However, I wonder if it should have been a piece to start with. I mean, it was, I mean, Donald Trump Jr. is, I mean, he and Eric are, are our, our own who day and who say, who really cares what kind of lie they tell. Uh, and I wonder if it doesn't just give it more credence to even publish uh, a story. Oh, no, I, I, I'm glad I know that because every now and then they'll say, oh, the Republicans are just attacking Trump. Really? <laughs> Look at this. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a talking point. Well, you'd sure know about it because, um, Fox and Breitbart and others, uh, the Daily Caller, uh, would, would, would go, look, I'm John's, John's the best. John's terrific. And the story was terrific. And, of course, Donald Trump Jr.'s answer was, uh, you know, I was just joking. This was my sense of humor. There's one thing we know about the Trumps. There's one thing of, well, there are a lot of things we know about them, but one thing we're certain, they don't have any humor. Humor is not in their arsenal. Uh, and uh, so I, I think John caught him. I just thought the story got more attention than it should have. And I feel the same way about the bar and Obama and, and Biden. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It, it's just going to, again, that flood the zone with shit. Yeah, they so. do. Let's, well, let's go. I mean, the biggest, the biggest piece of, you know, what in this is the so-called Obamagate charge. The Obamagate charge put simply is that uh, Obama, Biden, Susan Rice, and the others in that administration tried to illicitly, uh, prevent Donald Trump from becoming president. And then after he was uh, duly elected, uh, that they then tried to sandbag his administration with a bunch of illicit acts. Uh, and that's, you know, if it just were the, some of the crazies saying that, it'd be fine. But it's picked up by all the fellow travelers, Hugh Hewitt, uh, the columnist, uh, the media craze, George Washington law professor, uh, Jonathan Turley. And of course, it's all over Fox News. It is completely bogus. I mean, just to stay on this for a minute, the central charge revolves around Michael Flynn, the national security advisor, and why the FBI interviewed him in January in 2017 about his Russian contacts. This is four days after Trump was uh, sworn into office. Well, I'll tell you why the FBI interviewed him, and you know why. Because number one, in 2015, he took 45 grand from Russian television. That's from the state. He went to a, a, a lunch over in Moscow, sat next to Vladimir Putin. He made an illicit phone, uh, really a, 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 not illegal, uh, although that's questionable, certainly uh, a, an illicit phone call to the Russian ambassador while Obama was still president. And then when, at, when it came out and he was asked about it by the vice president, he lied about it. So why in the hell wouldn't the FBI want to interview this guy when we're in we still have not resolved the question. We know the Russians interfered in the elections. We don't know if they colluded or not with the uh, Trump team. Why wouldn't you interview Michael Flynn? Of course they did. And what did Michael Flynn do? It's habit now. He lied. And then he was, he, he, plea, he, he was able to cop a plea. And now, you know, the Roy Cohn of, 19, of 2020, Bill Barr is trying to kill it. But that's what Obamagate is all about. And they just because it's something they had to pull out. They had, to, they had to think of something new. I mean, and, and they'll carry this until it'll be the next thing. I mean, just flood the zone with shit. That's what they do. They get one thing, and they all talk about it. Oh, it's the most serious thing in the world. It's the greatest crime that any president's ever committed. Oh, really? Okay. 
Then boom. Look what they did with Benghazi. I mean, I, 11 and a half hours of testimony for nothing? They keep doing the same thing. Well, James, that was when Mike Pompeo believed in inspector generals. Oh, Mike Pompeo. He, he's hosted all those dinner parties over there at the State Department. Well, I, I think that may be one of his least offenses uh, uh, because, you know, others have done that too. But uh, he, he sold out his own diplomats, uh, the ambassador to Ukraine. He went and he lied about his knowledge uh, about Ukraine. He apparently is having his security personnel pick up his dog uh, for him uh, and pick up meals. Uh, his wife is probably, uh, you know, abusing uh, the public interest, at least the public payroll. Uh, he, he's a disgrace. And yet, you know, he's now even still considering going back to Kansas to run for the Senate. Now, I know it's it's one heck of a Republican state. I don't think they've elected a Democrat to the Senate from Kansas since, what, 1936. But and I know Pompeo was far and away the strongest candidate. Republicans like Mitch McConnell were trying to get him to run. But, James, he's got to be hurt by this if he goes back and runs. I guess. I mean, I don't think Mrs. Pompeo wants to go back to Kansas. She likes that jet-setting life, huh? I think she does. I, th- I think she likes having security fetch a dog. Yeah. You know, yeah. probably pick up the laundry, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't think she's crazy to go back to Topeka. Well, before we get into uh, the economy uh, and coming back, elaborate a little on what you think the Democrats, Biden, should be doing, particularly on this whole voter uh, suppression, this whole voter issue, uh, and other things. I mean, the state of the Biden campaign, even. Well, I mean, first of all, they're going to deal with this not all the way through the election and after the election. I, I, I hope, and I guess they do, I will be putting together a bunch of world-class legal teams because they're going to hit you every different way that you can. It'll be in Michigan one day, it'll be somewhere else the next day, it'll be something here, there would be something there. And so the, and the campaign has to outsource a lot of this. So I think they should be totally, totally, totally prepared for that. And I think they should prepare like kits for state legislators, you know, how, how to deal with this. Because it's going to be coming, 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 coming again and again. You can tell you know where it's going to come from. Basically, states that have Republican legislatures. Because of the struggle here is if everybody get, who wants to vote can vote, he'll lose really bad. If most of the people who can vote get to vote, he'll lose less bad. Yeah, uh, attesting to that, you know, we see polls every day. You're not quite sure the quality of, of any of them, but you take them all together and it gives you a pretty good mosaic of what it's all about. Two, I, two, two struck me this week. One Arizona poll that showed Biden up seven. In Arizona, a state that uh, uh, Trump carried by by three and a half, four last time. The other was Tennessee poll. Now, the Tennessee poll showed Trump winning by 17. So Republicans should rejoice in that, right? The problem is that Trump won Tennessee by 26 last time. Every single survey you see, Trump is running behind where he was in 2016, and Biden is running ahead uh, where Hillary was. And they're seeing those same polls, and that's why they're doing exactly what you say uh, they're doing. What what would you advise the Biden campaign to do right now? Because the election is only five and a half months away. Well, first thing I'd do is I, I would decentralize. The idea of the modern campaign, like a command structure top down, it doesn't work anymore. 
Look at that event that they did in Tampa. It was a disaster. Then look at the event that uh, President Obama and LeBron James and all of them did for commencement. Hire those people. You, you're not you're not accustomed to doing this. The the campaign has to be more. But, but this one sophomore at Stanford figured out how how the Russians were mucking up with the voter registration. That was the Franklin Four piece, and I guess it was the Atlantic. Uh, and this kid was was such a young genius. He got a four year scholarship uh, to Stanford, paid for by I think Facebook, because he showed Facebook how easy it was. I think it was Facebook, it may have been Google, uh, to hack into their system. The Biden campaign will hire him. I I interrupted you. Go ahead. That's okay. The two Mexican immigrant kids from Mexico, they, they have more Facebook followers than anything that Biden has. The, the Democrats, there's energy all over this country. And what the Biden campaign has got to do is they got to, they got to know where it is, harness it to the extent that it's legal. Sometimes they got campaign finance things, coordinate it, use, use it. I mean, I'm working on a project where we're spending $50 million in 77 counties. But Roger Altman and them are registering tens of thousands of voters in Florida. Be aware of all of that. Try to encourage it where you can. But you, you're not going to put together a traditional campaign where you have a campaign manager and you have advanced people and you got legal, you got tech support. No, you got to outsource all of that. You got, and that's the only way you're going to get ready fast enough. And, and you talk about the tech stuff, they're very advanced in that. But we got people out there that, that are really good at this, but you're not going to hire like a campaign does where you get really good Senate staff for, for the last nine years and hire them. That, that's not going to get it done this time. You got to identify talent in the country, harness it, use it, and try to use it in a, in a, in a way that's consistent with the campaign is trying to do. I, I, really, I really believe that. that this the old model is gone. And some of that stuff, some of that stuff takes time. There's 165 days, I think, left before November the third. Uh, they can't wait till July or August to start this stuff. Well, it doesn't take. It, it's very fast to hire a production company to put your events on. Well, that's true, but some of the, um, you know, some of the digital stuff, some of the legal stuff, you got to build up, uh, you know, teams, expertise, and um, and and focus. But my point, Albert, you don't know what's already out there. If you were starting from scratch, it'd take forever. But there's a thousand points of light out there that people are doing. And the campaign has got to try to harness that, see where it is and what, what these people are doing better than they could do, which is probably a lot. And that's not a knock on the campaign itself. It's just as opposed to you building a structure, you got to go out and find one and put it in that's existing and use it to your end. But there's all kinds of stuff out there. And how about the candidate himself? Uh, should Joe Biden be doing anything uh, differently or is he just, um, you know, fine, um, you know, doing occasional um, interviews and, um, and you don't want to screw up like Tampa, you're right. But uh, what else should he be doing? Well, the basement has become a story itself. I, it, from what I understand, he has two hours of briefings every day on foreign policy and economic policy. He can do what anybody does. He can have a foreign policy speech. He could have a, a Jamie Dimon, Mark Cuban, Ray Dalio saying, we have to do something about inequality in this country. I mean, he could do a whole thing on inequality. I think he could make some 
you know, he's big announcement in terms of personnel. I mean, there are things he can do that would, you know, gin up some some press. He doesn't need to do a lot, but you know, he can talk about. He's got. He can talk about response in pandemic. He can talk about a thousand different things. James, you think there'll be a convention, a real convention, live uh, people in um, uh, Milwaukee this summer? No. Well, why don't the Democrats just say that? Well, I guess you you want to hold it out to the last minute and, you know, maybe get a treatment or, or, or something like that. But I don't see how. How's all the people going to go back? It's not, if you, it's not just you go to Milwaukee, what happens? You're sending people back out to all the 50 states. Yeah, well, I, I agree. I think it's not going to happen. And I think that's that goes to the point you were making earlier. I think it's really, that being the case, it's really important for them to come up with a creative and interesting way to have a virtual convention. I mean, it's not going to be uh, uh, three or four primetime evenings and hours and hours and hours, but there are things they can do and there are people that they can display that would be quite interesting if they really do it well. Yeah, but, but you, you're, they can't do that. Steven Spielberg can do that. Well, I mean, I'm not well, saying they, I'm talking about Democrats. You're right. But there are right. people that can do that brilliantly. Identify them and get them to work on it. But you can't do that. No campaign can do that. No, you control them. But the speeches, the message, the scene, they, they got to have everything ready for that. Let me just say as a quick aside, because uh, I'm picking up on something that you had said earlier. Uh, you, you're right. People have to leave wherever they're going. Uh, I have now become convinced. You first said this, and I, I, I was quite dubious, that airline travel is safer than I thought it was. Uh, I've now seen several pieces, including one semi-study by a guy from Harvard, that there's 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 reason to think that, uh, you know, you're not in any greater danger of contact if you're assuming the airlines do what they're going to do. Uh, if you're flying. Now, I don't want to fly anyway, James, but I, I think that's, I, I didn't realize that before. I didn't either until I read the article. And how many times it, it circulates, but I mean, still, you could sit next to an infected person. You know, it'd feel a lot better if the seat next to me was vacant. Our guest is David Wessel, a scholar at the Brookings Institution. Earlier, James, uh, David and I worked together at the Wall Street Journal, where he was simply the best economics uh, reporter in Washington, deeply knowledgeable, well-sourced, but he had an ability to tell the story in English, which is not true of all economic stories you read, particularly for people like you and me. He's also the author of three books on how Ben Bernanke and the Fed uh, responded to the financial crisis in 2008-2009, a book on red ink, the deficits, and a book that may be long forgotten, but we ought to revisit on the value of community colleges, uh, written many, many years ago with his colleague, Bob Davis. David, welcome to our show. Good to be with you again, Al. Good. Let's start. When and how fast do the really smart people think this economy is going to recover. I saw the CBO was out with a new report this week that was a bit more optimistic uh, than the last time about a rebound in 2021. Trump and his aides are talking about uh, an economy that roars back by election day. Others are far more pessimistic. What's the what's the best estimate now? Well, I think that it's it. I think people are counting on social distancing receding and the economy beginning to uh, recover. 
in, in later this summer. The issue really is, is that a, just a little bit of a recovery or a lot of recovery? I mean, we heard the other day uh, the Fed Chair Jay Powell and the Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin on the Hill, and Mnuchin and several other people in the administration are acting like everything's going to be wonderful by the fall. You can know why they're hoping that's true. Uh, uh, both CBO and the Federal Reserve saying it's going to be a low, long, slow, painful recovery. Uh, the CBO report that you referred to said uh, unemployment will still be nearly 9% at the end of 2021. So recessionary unemployment levels through the next year and a half. Well, what I don't understand about the White House, Kevin Hass and others saying, you know, we really don't need uh, perhaps another fiscal infusion. We're going to do well. I, I, I believe, and I think there's a lot of evidence that all Trump cares about right now is what the economy is going to look like on November 3rd. If that's the case, why wouldn't he want to just goose it up and go with another huge stimulus? I, I agree with you 100 I, percent. I, all I can think of is there's two possibilities here. One is it's just a bargaining thing that they're saying, well, we're not interested, so you have to come in our direction. Uh, or the other is that um, there's a, that the economists and the economic policy people around Trump are very optimistic and they're a little resistant to too much more government spending. So they're trying to bargain with him and, and move him down. But I can't imagine that uh, the president is going to stand in the way of another big fiscal package. A lot of the stuff that Congress put in place is going to expire at the end of June or the end of July. Surely he doesn't want the economy to fall off a cliff there. And I don't, I'm not as optimistic as the White House people are that everything's going to be hunky-dory by the fall. Well, and also these models, as good as some might be, are based on history and data. And yet it's the, it's, it's the consumer and consumer confidence that's going to drive any recovery and uh, I would be wary of uh, any any uh, sudden boom in consumer confidence. It seems to me it's much more lucky that's going to be very slow uh, as people worry about how safe it is to go places and uh, and do things. No, I think you're right. And the thing that's puzzling me a little bit is, so why not? What's the risk to the president of saying, yeah, I'm going to go with the Democrats or we're going to extend some of these unemployment benefits or send people another check? The only thing that happens is they run up the deficit a little more. That doesn't seem to be a big concern of his. And besides, the U.S. government is borrowing it next to nothing in interest rates. So there's not a lot of near-term risk to him taking it. I, I think that pretty soon we'll see the White House signing up for another round, uh, maybe before the 4th of July recess. So, so, David, all of my time, you know, well, starting with the Clinton administration, I was running campaigns, Senate campaigns before that. There was just the deficit. But pay as you go. Man, that, that, that was, you had to do that. Fiscal conservatism, drunken sailors. So, you know, you balance the budget in the late 90s, and then Bush comes in, and he doesn't pay for Medicare Part D, the first entitlement, and the Tea Party, and the stimulus, and Obama stimulus, and everything is the, the, the put in the triggers and the bill to cut this and and reform the damn entitlements and Erskine and Senator Simpson and everybody going nuts. And then all of a sudden, who cares? It doesn't matter. It's an MMT or, or the interest rates are low and no one even, you're silly to even mention it. So I, I, I guess all that stuff that we went through 
in, in Obama, you, you know, they were fighting over whether Obama, how much Obamacare would cost or would it save money. And I mean, it was just this huge argument over $200 million. And now none of it matters. Okay. But why the hell did we have 780 billion stimulus for Obama? But why didn't we have 7 trillion if it doesn't matter? Well, I think two things uh, answer your question. One is 100% political. I predict, and I'm sure you agree, Jim, that if we, if Joe Biden is president, the Republicans are going to discover fiscal uh, religion all over again, and they're going to be objecting everything that he wants to spend money unless it's paid for, or we got to cut entitlements and everything like that. So Republicans have a very flexible view of the budget. It just depends on who's in the White House, which side they're on. Um, but the second thing is, I think that a lot of the economic thinking has changed. Um, when in the Clinton administration, when you guys came in, interest rates were uh, were well above zero. And Bob Rubin convinced Bill Clinton that if he cut the deficit, that the Fed would lower interest rates and the bond market would lower interest rates, and we'd have a great decade. And they were right. But today, interest rates are basically uh, bumping along at zero. And that means that the bond market and the Fed can't do what the economy needs to get it going again. So the only alternative is for the government to deficit spend. And we're lucky that there seems to be a lot of savings in the world that people are willing to lead, lead, lend to the U.S. government. The, you know, the Treasury is going to borrow $3 trillion this quarter. Um, they're selling 10-year bonds at something like six-tenths of a percent interest rate. And so that changes the economic calculus. There's a risk. We're going to have to deal with it someday, but this is not someday. So, okay, I understand that. I just, I, I never saw so much energy and so much commentary spent on a single thing. Now it doesn't matter anymore. So, I mean, and I understand that we're in this predicament. It's like it's a World War II. It's everything else. But, you know, you have, as, as Alvin points out, you have Ken Rogoff saying he doesn't care if they borrow $5 trillion. He wrote a book, if you're over 100% GDP, your whole economy collapses. Yeah, well, you know, um, I think a lot of those people, and frankly, Erskine Bowles and, and Senator Simpson were among them, kept telling us, if we don't do something about the debt, we're going to have a big financial crisis. And it never showed up. And so the people who were, who were really genuinely worried about the long-term picture don't have much of an argument because they've been saying for two decades that we're going to have a crisis if we don't do something. And that's turned out not to be true. So I think the short answer is we're on an unsustainable course. We were on an unsustainable course before COVID. Uh, borrowing to fight COVID makes total sense. We'll have to get back to this someday, but we have the luxury of not having to do it urgently because interest rates are so low. So the world is just different than it was in 1993. That it is. That it is. David, um, given you say that it has to be done on the fiscal side. Jay Powell in that testimony did say he does have, uh, you know, he does have more arrows in his arsenal. What are they? Well, you know, um, if the Fed chairman ever got up before Congress or TV camera and say, I'm out of ammo, uh, the markets would tank. So they're never going to say that. Uh, the, the fact is he can't lower interest rates any more than he has. They're not going to go to negative interest rates. Uh, they're buying a lot of bonds. They could always buy more. They could promise to hold interest rates low for even longer than they have. So basically, the main tools they have are, one, 
they could set ceilings on long-term interest rates. They can say, we're going to buy enough bonds so the yield on 2% or five-year, two-year or five-year treasuries won't go above some level. That's what the Japanese have done. And they can use these lending programs that the Congress set up more aggressively than they have. But I thought what Powell has been saying as carefully as he can, it's kind of embarrassing to sit next to the Treasury Secretary and disagree with him in public is he's saying to Congress, and I think he had an impact. He has about a 40-point IQ advantage, but go ahead. Oh, I agree with that. But he doesn't want to take on Mnuchin in public, certainly not sitting next to him. But I think he was giving Congress all the argument they need to say that they need to do more on the fiscal side. Um, and he doesn't have a lot of maneuvering room. Uh, they move pretty quickly. Some of the money, they, they, have, they have more money to go on these lending programs, but there's not really much they can do. And so that's why fiscal is so important. So, David, you got Jamie Dimon, Mark Cuban, Ray Dalio, all saying, hey, we got to do something about inequality when we get through this. And, and so everybody sort of acknowledges that. What are three things that they could do to lessen inequality? If you had three things in your toolkit, let's assume that the vaccine, this thing is passed, we're, we're, we're coming out of the hole. Right. Well, there there are, I think the first thing is, especially if we can borrow cheaply, is we need to spend a lot more money on kids in low-income families, child care, expanded health care to people who don't have it, whatever it takes. All those, the, the evidence is that investments in children, particularly uh, poor children in poor families, uh, pay off in higher earnings for them and pay off for the society. And there's actually surprising consensus about that among economists of different political stripes. So that's one. Two, uh, there, you know, Larry Summers once said that investing in education is the ultimate act of hope in the future. And that's true. It's not going to pay off quickly. But some of the inequality we have, not all of it, but some of it reflects the um, poor quality of education that's available to some, some lower third or half of the population. So we got to fix that. Third, um, we got to finish the job of providing universal health care. That's just ridiculous amount of inequality caused by that. And finally, we're going to have to do something on taxes. We've been cutting taxes on the rich for the last several years. And we're not going to be able to make all the do everything we can without raising taxes on the rich. And that seems kind of an obvious thing to me, especially since we're uh, in a period where the rich are claiming a larger share of the pie. And how worried are you about deflation? Um, a little, but not a lot. I'm more worried about deflation than inflation. But I think that uh, I think that the Fed, one of the reasons that we're not doing even worse than we are, is that the Fed, and to some extent, the Congress, learned some lessons, both from the 1930s and from the 2008 crisis. And so I think they've done enough to prevent us from slipping into deflation. And one of the sort of the strategy they use is if they promise loud enough and long enough that they won't let that happen, then people don't expect it. And if people don't expect it, then it doesn't happen. It's kind of a Tinkerbell school. So I don't think there's much risk of that, but it's not zero. And it's really having interest rates at zero is a symptom of an economy that is uh, deeply troubled. Uh, you know, this is not a good thing. It means that there are not a lot of people who want to borrow to invest, and it, it causes huge problems for the, for the Fed. 
and it's a symptom of a, a malfunctioning economy. And one of the risks is that you slide into deflation, but I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, David, what percentage of the debt will the Fed hold uh, you know, as they work through this, roughly? I don't know, but the, uh, the Fed is basically buying enough bonds now to cover what the actual additional treasury borrowing has been uh, in the last couple of months. I'm just wondering who holds more debt, the Fed or China? Uh, I think China's ahead, but, but China's probably selling and the Fed is probably buying. So look, uh, to what Jim said, what, what could go wrong here? You know, the treasury issues trillions of dollars of debt, the Fed prints money and buys all this debt. So the risk is that we don't get deflation, but that somewhere down the road we get inflation. You know, eventually there's too much money chasing too few goods, particularly if a lot of businesses don't make it through this crisis, and we might get some inflation. So that's a risk. Um, the people I most respect say it's still a small risk. Uh, Martin Wolf in the FT, who's you know pretty much of a Keynesian, he's now worrying a little bit about the inflation thing. It's a small risk, and so it's what one of the things that this really points up is you really want to have a competent guy at the Federal Reserve. And I think there's some alarm in the community, in the economics community, that if Trump is reelected and he doesn't replace Jay Powell, which he might now that he seems to be happy with Powell, that we could have someone who's not competent in that job. And that would be a really bad thing because we're going to rely on the next Fed chairman to steer us between this inflation, deflation tension. And uh, you want someone who knows what they're doing and has some credibility. And everybody gives Powell high marks. Is that right? Pretty much. I mean, I, I think it's surprising to tell you the truth. I was concerned when Powell got named that he would be fine at dealing with Congress. He's, predict he's protected the Fed and he's done a good job with his colleagues. He's kind of a, a thoughtful guy and easy to get along with. But I was concerned that if something happened, he wouldn't have the stature inside and outside the Fed to take bold action. Um, and I was wrong. I mean, they moved pretty boldly. He he went through the Bernanke playbook in about the first 15 minutes and then put new pages in it. Um, so it's been very impressive. And I've also been impressed with his, when he appears on on TV or uh, we did an event with him at Brookings, he seems to have this pretty good mix of um, empathy and I'm a grown-up who's in charge. And boy, we need that because when some of the people come out on the White House lawn from the administration, you just kind of want to go back under your couch and say, wake me up when this is over. <laughs> it better be over come next January because if it's not, we'll be in a world of hurt. <laughs> I think the other thing that's going to be it, tricky is that tr if Biden wins is the transition. Um, you know, the Hoover to Roosevelt transition was a pretty ugly time. And I can't, you know, we were very lucky in the Bush to Obama transition. That went surprisingly smoothly, given all that was going on in the economy. I will worried about what happens between November and January if there's an uptick in the uh, in the virus. Yeah, I think Roosevelt didn't. He didn't take office till March. Right. Oh, so I think they moved the date in part because of that. But it's pretty frightening. And I think the other thing to keep in mind here, you referred to it, Al, is, you know, economists always say this kind of caveat, well, we're really uncertain. I think Greenspan gave about 150 speeches when he said that we're in extraordinarily uncertain times and they would have these conferences on making monetary policy under uncertainty. I always was waiting for the one where they said making monetary policy when things are not uncertain. But even by that, but, but by that metric, this is way off the charts. I mean, 
we really don't know what's going to happen. We've never been through anything like this before, at least not since 1918. Uh, we don't know how soon we'll get a treatment or a virus. As you pointed out, pointed out, Al, we don't know how people and businesses are going to behave. I mean, it's pretty clear we're not be going to be going to the Nets stadium in the next couple of months, but will people be willing to get on airplanes again? Will we have learned that we can do plenty fine meetings on Zoom? Um, will older people be afraid to go out uh, to shop? I mean, it's, we just we don't really know how shaken up people are and how long it'll take for things to get back to normal, even if the social distancing recedes and we're not getting these scary reports about another 10,000 people died today in, in somewhere. So it's, it's really, the, it's a very, very hard thing to gauge. And I worry that some of the optimism coming out of the White House is leading people to think that it's going to be easier than it will be, and they're going to be disappointed. And that's that. I think what Powell's trying to say to Congress is, I'm not sure of how bad this is going to be, but if I were you, I'd take out some insurance now. And as, as one of you said, I think Trump will come to agree with that before long. Yeah. David Wessel, this has been uh, informative education. James, I told you, he can... He can not only write in English, he can speak in English, which is not true at all. Well, that's because, that's because when I was working at the Wall Street Journal, I had to explain all this stuff to you, Al, and it gave me a lot of practice. It, it took a long time. But, boy, you did a great job today. Thank you so much. Stay safe, oh, David. Welcome. And we will be in touch when we get you back. All right. Thank Take you. care, guys. Bye. James, tell us, you drove, I think it was 14 hours from the Shenandoah down to your place in Mississippi uh, uh, last weekend. Tell us what it's like down there. It's the Wild West. I mean, I went to the grocery store. There's been 50, 60 people in there. Myself and one mom and two two of her children had masks on. I'm like, holy moly. And they, they tell me, you know, all along the northern Gulf of Mexico, if there's not a breakout here, by mid-June, we're going to have to rethink the whole thing because it, it is an entirely different culture here. I mean, they, they, some of the restaurants have social distancing, but it, it strikes me that people are not taking it very seriously. And I, I'm afraid that the epidemiologists are right. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the expert. It's not only the experts, but it's the experiences that we have seen uh, among those places in those countries that took it seriously as opposed to those that didn't. Uh, I mean, we're not taking it very seriously in California anymore. Yeah. I mean, people aren't. Well, I'm, I'm in one of those um, elite areas that uh, some uh, people uh, say that we believe in uh, sheltering at home and all that stuff because the elites aren't affected by this the way. Uh, working class people are, poor people are. And most of that stuff is coming from right-wing columnists who never had that kind of concern for the poor before. Uh, there there certainly is a truth to the fact that the, the working class people and the poor are hurt a great deal more as they usually are in any situation. When they can't work, uh, it really hurts them uh, a great deal. I mean, you and I may be uh, you know, a little bit inconvenience. We're upset we can't go to a ball game, but, you know, life isn't going to uh, profoundly change for us. And we don't have to worry about where the next meal is coming from. But the, 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 to me, the refutation of that argument is if we go back, if we, if the whole country becomes the wild west, the people who are going to be most hurt by that 
are going to be those very low-income working-class people who disproportionately suffer from the sorts of things that Alex Azar talked about the other day, obesity and diabetes and the like. Of course, he never did anything about it beforehand. Uh, and that's that's the concern, I think. Yeah. I mean, look, when we come out of this, the country's really going to change. Uh, it feels like it's going to become more communal and probably more liberal, but I don't know that. It, it could have exactly the opposite reaction. I mean, it, there's no sense of the country coming together. And if anything, it, it, we're going through this crisis, you know, horrifically divided. And, and, and it's not, but on the other hand, there's one person who is responsible for almost all of this, and we know his name, right? And, you know, who knows and what the, what the reaction is going to be. But a lot of poor people, or even middle-class people, are going to be very angry. I mean, see these bailouts? that We saw what happened after 2009. I mean, we see it. And this is a precarious time for the country. It, and it's going to be precarious for a while. It is. I, you know, I, I, the only thing I would take mild issue is that I think that certainly the politicians have been uh, divided on on this. I, I think the people are 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 more are more together. There are certainly people who are frustrated and they're opening bars and salons and they're protesting the state capitals. But I think that's a distinct minority. I think most people recognize the dangers. They're worried. Uh, they want this to go away. They have more patience than I would have guessed uh, two months ago. Uh, now, whether that lasts or not depends on how long this lasts and when we get a vaccine. Well, I, don't, I mean, I don't see it so much here. It has become like a political issue if you wear a mask or not. Yeah. I mean, you know, there wasn't any war bonds. Everybody was against, you know, I mean, there wasn't any of that kind of thing. And they're just stoking it every day. I mean, just listen to talk radio, listen to Fox. The, the elites, they want you, you know, locked up and it's all left, right. And there was a big story in the Times today about how all these sites are up with these conspiracies, the whole thing in the Atlantic. I mean, it's, it's, it's a strange world out there in the country. You know, and there's just too many crazy people and this sounds like it's, you know, the Chinese virus. I mean, is it? I don't know how it's going. To, this country will be hard to put back together. No, it is, and we need all the, um, uh, you know, all the distractions. We need all the um, places that we can go and watch uh, in order to get through it. I am dying to go to a baseball game. We have. You know, the last year we had the greatest baseball season, I think, maybe in the history of the game. And the idea of going out and watching them come back, however they do, is is enticing. But, you know, anybody would be a fool to go to a baseball stadium these days. And uh, so there's a great balancing act. Now, some of it is compensated. I, I hope they play. I hope they play because I'll watch every game. Uh, James, I'm going to get you, by the way, to watch the last dance. That that Those last – I've been watching those last two segments are among the most compelling television I've ever seen. Uh, it really was incredible. And what's fascinating, look at the reaction. You know, when I see it, about 80% of the people came away with a better feeling about Michael Jordan. About 20% came up with a decidedly more negative feeling about Michael Jordan. He is, he remains an incredibly larger than life figure. 
uh, I would guess he and Muhammad Ali may be the two most uh, uh, famous athletes of the last 50 years. Probably so. It's it's worth watching. Hey, uh, you be safe down there. Don't you join the Wild West. Well, I want to mention somebody. Uh, yep. Annie Glenn died at 100. Oh. And she was a very, very nice woman. What a marriage they had. What a, what a life. James, I'm so glad you brought that up because Annie Glenn, as you know, uh, was a uh, severe stutter. When John Glenn became the most famous person on the planet, she couldn't answer the telephone. Uh, and she finally overcame it with the help of some professor down at Holland's College. And our son, as you know, went through a terrible injury and was learning how to talk again. And when we would see the Glens, Annie would go and spend an hour or two with Jeffrey, telling him what he had to do. She, he yesterday was in virtual tears when he heard that Annie Glenn at age 100 died. Her husband was probably the greatest icon of the 20th century. And uh, John would say he married up because they were they met each other in the playpen when they were three years old. And it was one of the great marriages of all times. And boy, I'm glad you brought it up. Well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad you're glad. The woman had <laughs> an right. incredible life. She sure did. Be safe. And uh, we'll uh, talk next week. Good deal. Hey, thanks for listening to 2020 Politics War Room. And follow the show on Twitter and Instagram and at Politics War Room. Thank you for subscribing. And if you leave us a five-star review, we will not complain. For James Carville, I'm Al Hunt. We'll talk to you next week. Stay safe.